Okay, Hazy and T in the building. We got Eric Bischoff. You know he is NWO, but let's go. If you like what I'm doing, hit the subscribe button. My name's Eric Bischoff, and guess what? I'm coming up on the podcast. I only touch greatness. Give it a listen. <laughs> Brian Hayes. Brian never stop. I only touch greatness podcast. Shouts out to my sponsor, the John B. Pub. If you need a place to go for good food, good drinks, the most beers on tap, and a great friendly staff. Head on over to the John B. Pub on Austin Avenue in Coquitlam. This is I Only Touch Greatness Podcast with Ryan Hayes. We are going live. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I had to put my NWO stuff on for you. No, I love that. I I greatly appreciate that. It's the way I like to start my day. (laughs) Yeah, it's the best logo of all time. We'll get into that later. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, my friend. Thank you for asking. How are you? Good. Uh, yeah, Saturday morning is the best we can ask for. I see a little COVID test, though, or uh, fucking with my NFL for tomorrow. But Yeah, it's a mess, isn't it? I mean, it seems like the NBA is the only – and the NHL have been the only uh, professional teams that have been able to figure out a way to manage it. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it's being in the bubble kind of actually helps. It seems to have, no doubt – Okay. So you're born in Detroit. Uh, did you always want to be involved in wrestling? No, you know, um, I, I, as a kid, I grew up as a wrestling fan. Um, that's no secret. Like a lot of kids. Um, I, I lived in Detroit till I was about 14 and then moved to Pittsburgh and realized there was a whole new world heavyweight champion and a whole new bunch of wrestlers. That was back in the territory system where if you lived in Detroit, like I did, you weren't exposed to wrestling from other regions of the country. So it was a whole new world. I, I became a fan in Pittsburgh, of Bruno San Martino, actually, and then moved to Minneapolis. And there was a whole other wrestling organization that I had never heard of called the AWA and was a big fan of the AWA as a young teenager and into my early 20s and late 20s, actually. And in my early 30s, ended up getting a job there surely by coincidence, not by design or, or, or goal setting or anything like that. It was just sheer coincidence. Yeah, that was my next question, actually. actually the AWA, what led to its demise? Um, well, you know, a, a number of factors, but they were all centrally kind of rooted in the fact that um, Vern made a choice and a decision. When, when Vince McMahon offered to buy Vern Gagne out, as Vince did with a lot of territories, Vern believed, obviously incorrectly, that Vince would not succeed and the territory system would prevail and business would come back um, after Vince had taken Hulk Hogan and a couple other big stars uh, Vern was wrong in that. He was stubborn. He, he was set in his ways, as successful people can sometimes be. But I think because Vern made that decision and he really thought that Vince McMahon Jr. was ultimately going to fail and that 
Vern could resurrect the AWA. He dumped a lot of his own personal resources into the company at, at a time when the company wasn't generating any resources of its own, any revenue of its own. And eventually, you know, Vern ran out of personal finances, could no longer fund the AWA. Vince McMahon and the WWF went on to become hugely successful and involved into the WWE and a global phenomenon. And all of that really was a result of Vince McMahon's vision and Vern Gagne's, as much as I love and respect Vern, um, lack thereof. That's it. Um, it happens in a lot of businesses. You either adapt or you die. I, I think any business in the world yeah. has to recognize that the market is changing, distribution is changing, products is changing, customers or audiences' expectations are always changing. So you either adapt to that or you, as Vern Gagne did, hold on to the past and, and other promoters. It wasn't just Vern. There were a lot of people in the industry that, that did the same thing. Um, you either adapt or you die. It's kind of like it's kind of like died. Yeah, it's kind of like I say, COVID. Like it's made we've all adapted to this new system of online meetings. We're having to we're learning stuff, and you're staying home a little more, and you're finding ways to be creative at home. It, true, and I think even in a much broader kind of business sense, um, I don't know what it's like in in Canada. Uh, particularly Western Canada, but in a lot of the major cities in the United States, for example, there are office buildings that were designed five years ago, 10 years ago, in some cases, seven years ago, that are just now being constructed for what many people in the commercial real estate business thought was going to be a continued expansion uh, for the need of, for, for business space. And I think because of COVID, a lot of companies are realizing that not only do employees not have to work in an office as they have traditionally for decades upon decades, that they can indeed not only work for home, uh, but they can work from home more effectively. Yeah. And as we see that now here in the United States, there's a lot of concern for commercial office buildings and property manage management companies who are, who are seeing you know, potential future you know, office space requirements dropping through the floor. And these, a lot of these office buildings are half built, three quarters built. So it's an interesting thing. You know, it, it goes to show you that, you know, out of every, you know, bad situation, if you look hard enough, you'll find that there's some positive things that result as, as, as that occur as a result of them. Yeah, that's for sure. Up here, we've got it where there is a lot of people that are, um, working from home now. Uh, that's like you're saying, you think of all, like even my work, like all the office staff is working from home, but they have a whole building just for office staff. That's empty. They're sitting there empty right now. Cause they're all working from home. It, it, it's really interesting. My daughter, uh, works for a, one of the largest television networks and studios in, in the world in Los Angeles. She's a director of development there. She's got a pretty high position. And I was talking to her a couple of weeks ago and, you know, their office, they're working, she is working 70 to 75 hours a week from home, which is actually more time than she was putting in the, in the office because she doesn't have a 90 minute commute yeah. or, or, or an hour commute each day, each way. 
two hours total, or sometimes more, depending on the traffic in Los Angeles. Which is crazy. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad situation in some respects, in many respects. It's a horrific situation if someone it has a family member or someone passed away from, from COVID. But there's a lot of television networks I know right now, because I know a lot of people in that industry are coming to realize that, you know, this, the old way of doing business is, is about to change in, for, for, forever as a result of what we're going through. Um, you first auditioned for WWF before you went to WCW in 91? Yes. Okay. And they, 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 I bet they really kicked it. They were kicking their ass after that because they turned you down the first time and then you went and took over. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. I, 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 I kind of doubt that. Oh. You know, I don't think Vince McMahon or anybody in the WWE is the kind of, are the kind of people that would – look in the mirror and say, oh, man, if only we would have hired him, you know, none of this would have happened. That's just not how they think, nor should it be. I, I would be disappointed if that were the case. I, I think more than likely what was the case well, was probably a little shock and surprise when things started really turning around in, in WCW. Undoubtedly, they were shocked and surprised. Um, but rather than probably thinking, oh, man, I wish we would have hired him back in 1990, they were probably thinking, you know, all right, we'll, we'll show him, you know, we'll dig in, we'll work harder, we'll work smarter, you know, we, we will do whatever we have to do to prevail. And I'm pretty sure that was the, the response as opposed to feeling Remarkable. like they made a mistake by not hiring me, you know, five years earlier. Yeah. Um, in 1993, you started, uh, started as executive producer. You got the job of... Uh, you got the job ahead of Jim Ross and Shivani. Is, is that the reason that Jim went to WWE? Um, I don't know that Jim Ross even applied for the job. Well, he may have, I, I, I'd have to ask him. Uh, I've heard that before. And I, I, every time I'm around Jim, I forget to ask him, you know, it's something I've, I've heard number, any number of times, but I don't think that that is the case. Uh, Jim Ross, unfortunately for Jim, was directly associated in the minds of his superiors, which, by the way, I wasn't one of them at the time. But, but Ross was, Jim Ross was, um, he was so closely associated with Bill Watts that when things went badly with Bill Watts, there was no way that Jim Ross was going to be able to avoid the, the backblast. And, and as a result of that, I don't think Jim would have ever been considered as an executive producer, even if he had applied. Uh, Tony, I think, did. I, I, again, I've never talked to Tony about that. I think that that's true uh, or probably true. Um, but Jim left. Jim left as a result of what I just described. There was so much collateral damage. Um, that Jim took the brunt of as a result of Bill Watts, that A, he was, number one, he was miserable. And number two, and I think more importantly, it was likely very difficult for Jim to wrap his head around working for me. And to make it worse, uh, Jim knew that I wasn't excited about him as a play-by-play -play announcer. Imagine that. Yeah. Someone that almost unquestionably most wrestling fans would agree is the best wrestling announcer in wrestling history, um, perhaps second behind maybe only Gordon Soley, 
And I didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't interested in him in a prominent on-camera position. My reasons weren't because I didn't think he wasn't a great announcer. My reasons were because I felt as though the look and feel of the product had to be different and not seem to be, even on the surface, just another evolution of the same thing. Yeah. And, and, and announcers are a very prominent part of the show. The announcers spend more time on TV, although they're not on camera, but they're, they're, they spend more time developing a relationship with the television audience than any of the talent does. You take your top wrestlers, top talents, superstars, whatever you want to call them, and on any given show, any one of those top superstars may only have a 12 or 15 minutes of television time ability to connect with the audience whereas your announcers are out there for two sometimes three hours every week so while you know an announcer isn't the most important part of the show it is a critical part of the show for a lot of reasons and i felt that wcw need from a needed from a perception point of view to look and feel different and that included kind of demoting jim in terms of his on-camera presence uh, because he was so closely, so closely associated with the product for so long, and and the, the internal issues, obviously that that resulted is because of what went down with Bill Watts. Um, my buddy dropped in from Kansas City. He's here to ask you a couple questions too. Eventually, um, hey Prince, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing good. I had to wear my NWO shirt as usual. You, well, I got the. Well, Wolfpack on me today. That's all right, brother. It's all right. I love it. Been Thank you. Been a huge fan. Been a huge fan for years. Thank you. Um, why did you choose to move WCW to Disney Disney World and MGM? Um, it, it, you know, if you go back to 1993, you know, 1992, 1991, WCW historically had a very difficult time putting fans in an arena for television taping. Uh, television tapings aren't nearly as exciting to, to sit and watch um, in an arena sometimes as straight non-televised live events. Because when you're producing something for television, you're, you shut down for breaks, you, there's a lot of post-production things that are going on. Um, it, it's just, it, it's, it's different. And you have to have a very animated live, animated audience. The, the audience, as we've learned, I've said this decades ago, when I moved to Disney MGM Studios, it was because we didn't have the energy we needed in the audience because we couldn't attract a crowd. You, you go into an arena that was, had a capacity of five or 7,000 people, and when only six or 800 show up for an hour or two, it makes creating energy for that television show very, very difficult. When I moved down to Disney MGM Studios, or the decision to move down to the, to the studios, was because there was a constant crowd. There was a, there was a tour crowd. Disney MGM is a very, very popular uh, theme park. And when people come to the Disney MGM Studios, it's because they're interested in television production. So if you're producing a television show on the Disney MGM lot, you know, without any question, you're gonna be able to put five, six, seven hundred people in the soundstage, which I could make look like 1,700 people or 2,000 people because you have so much control over the post-production in the production environment. So it was just a question of look and feel and energy. 
Is that where Hogan? You, 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 that's where you signed Hogan, actually, wasn't it? At the MGM Grand. No, no, I didn't. I didn't sign him there, but that's where we initiated some of our early conversations. Okay, yeah, because he was doing uh, Thunder in Paradise, correct? Correct. All right. Um, yeah, you also at that time you you increased the number of pay per views, and you started the Nitro Live. Um, I personally loved it when you would spoil the raw results. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. You, me too. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, whenever I and thank you very much for saying that. I loved it too, by the way. But <laughs> it's it's interesting, you know. People remember that, you know. It wasn't a wrestling angle. It wasn't a match. It wasn't a pay per view. It was just a stunt. And it worked really, really well. And I, I think it, to a large degree, it set the tone and established Nitro as a renegade to, to the industry because that never, nobody ever did that before. Nobody would ever do that. And nobody had thought about doing it. Nobody had the ability to do it because I had, you know, I, the network that I was working for, you know, ran the show. So it was easy for me to go up three or four or five minutes early and give away the results or do any number of quirky things that I used to do that, that nobody had ever done before. Um, but they set the tone. But it, and the, the, whenever I hear a question like, you know, why, 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 or whenever I hear a signal like, Oh man, I used to love when you did that. I always say, well, why did you love it? Why did you, why do you still remember that? And I think the reason is for everything I just said, it had never been done before. Nitro's kind of like, Holy shit, what are they going to do next? Yeah. All of those emotions, sometimes they're subconscious, though, or, or subliminal. Uh, all of those emotions are what makes you come back and tune in next week because it feels unpredictable. It feels like it's different than what you're used to seeing, and that's always interesting. Always. That, yeah, that was always interesting because, I mean, used to watching that, that's what made us flip the channel. That was always like the greatest idea because we were like, oh shoot, like, well, we ain't gonna watch this. <laughs> we ain't gonna watch, we ain't gonna watch Ross if that's gonna happen. We were like, oh shit, they, or, or they just did that because to me as a fan, that's what kept us tuned in. All those great ideas because which that's why I always think like with those type of situations, like, that's what made us tune in with the Monday Night Wars was that it was everything you had to be on top of your game. That's what made Vince be what Vince had to do. He had to figure out something. That's a fact, brother. Yep, just dropped the mic. Hey, that all that by giving away the spoiling the results, that kind of kick started the Monday Night Wars. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, I think making the decision to go head to head with Monday Night Raw, I think that was the very first shot, clearly, because nobody had ever attempted, nobody would have ever conceived of doing that up until the point Ted Turner did. It wasn't my decision, it was Ted Turner's choice. Um, that, I think, was the very first shot. Um, and then after that first shot, then it was just a series of, you know, <laughs> hand grenades being thrown on a regular basis, whether it was giving away finishes or, you know, having Lex Luger show up, you know, the WWE, everybody in the WWF thought that Lex Luger was under contract. They were asleep at the wheel. They weren't paying attention. 
They were arrogant. They didn't have anything to worry about. They thought they were the only show in town. Nobody was going to mess with their talent, right? Wrong. I did. And that was another example. That's another shot. I mean, that was a serious shot. The first shot went over the bow. It was a warning shot. The second shot went right into the tent. <laughs> and that was, that was a whole different kind of shot, that being Lex Luger. And I just, I think from then on, it just kept building and building and building. But that's what made it feel like a war. You know, that's why, you know, I, you know, I get a lot of heat for this because I think people don't understand why I feel the way I feel. There's that question again, why? You know, when people talk about the Wednesday night war, and, and you know, okay, it's head-to-head. It's competition. We all like that. But it doesn't feel like a war because there's no real grenades other than saying something cute in a promo or making some kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek reference or something like that. There's no strategic back and forth. There's no, there's no battles going on. It, it, it was one declaration of war about a year ago. And since then, eh, nothing else has really happened other than the competitive environment, which I love, by the way. I That's what the whole Wednesday night thing is missing, is an actual war with actual battles. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Personal beef. That's what I was actually was going about to say, too, because I think that's what's, what really they kind of lacking with NXT. Because a- AEW, don't get me wrong, like, got all the talent. And they kind of remind me right now of Nitro a little bit because just because of the wrestling background. And I think they're kind of branching off of what you took place, you know what I'm saying? But they just not taking it, you know, taking the type of shots you was. You know what I'm saying? Taking the uh, ideas of you. Even so, sometimes I see a little similarities. Sometimes, but I don't see it all like how I used to. But like as I was about to say with things, Jim yeah. Jarrett also, I think, kind of branched off of you with T- TNA. Well, he tried. Ryan, Ryan's head looks like it's going to explode. I think he has a question. Yeah, yeah. Who? Okay, so I'm NWO for life. Like I, that's the real saying. Like I love every moment of NWO stuff. Hall and Nash are my two favorite wrestlers. Hogan's there too, of course. Um, who, who came up with the original NWO idea? Well, the original idea was mine, and and it. But I want to say this out of respect for Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Hulk obviously, and, and others. Um, the, the original idea was mine, but the NWO, as you saw it evolve throughout 96 and 97, um, was a collaborative effort among a lot of really, really talented people. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Hulk Hogan being at the very top of that list. So I'll take credit for the original idea, but what you saw in 96 and 97 was much stronger than just the original idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. Was there an I, I – or whose idea was it for Hall and Nash to be signed? You obviously are the one, but um, the way you brought them in also it had the whole world shook because they didn't know that they were coming either. No, no, that was – again, that was the beginning of the idea, and that, that was my strategy and my creative approach. Um, no one else's. Had some support. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. 
had, had a lot of support to help execute it. But the original idea, particularly in the way I brought in Scott Hall and the promo that Scott Hall cut, I actually wrote um, about an hour before the show. So all of that very, very early stuff was mine. And then, like I said, as it evolved, then it became more of a collaboration. I'm going to try to put highlights into this video of all these things, but I know WWF and WCW or all of them aren't going to let my YouTube do that, but we're going to try to put highlights in and get all this stuff. July, 1996, Bash at the Beach, the greatest moment in wrestling history. When Hogan turned heel. Oh yeah. Oh. And I heard, I heard that it wasn't always going to be Hogan as the heel. It, was it was there somebody else you had in mind? Uh, originally, before Hulk suggested that he be the third man, I, I let me back up just a little bit. About a year previous to 1996, sometime in early '95, um, I approached Hulk, and he and I had a conversation about him turning heel. And in that conversation, he made it very, very clear to me uh, that he was not interested in, in turning heel. He had too much invested in his character as a babyface. He had too many other business opportunities because of that character and his association as a babyface that he wasn't interested in turning heel, which I understood. I mean, that's a, that's a business decision. It's not an ego decision. It's not a power decision. It's a financial decision. And I understood it. So when the NWO idea started formulating in my head and I knew that I wanted to have a surprise as the third man, um, I went to Sting and had several conversations with Sting, who was the predominant baby face, baby face in WCW other than perhaps uh, Hogan. Um, and Sting agreed and was excited about doing it. And it was a couple of weeks after Sting and I started talking about Sting being the third man, that Hulk and I had a conversation and Hulk saw what was going on and thought that it was worth the risk to, to be that third man. And that's what happened. And it all played out perfectly. Right, because um, I was thinking, like, with those heels, I think sometimes with, like, with the like, as being, the, you know, baby face for so long, that's why I take kind of think that's what happened with Roman when everybody was booing him. It, it was felt like the crown he should have like went heel kind of like with Austin at the time when he turned babyface. You know what I'm saying? What what do you think some of the babyfaces should turn heel sometimes? I mean, there's no simple answer to that. It, it, every situation is different. Um, every talent I mean, you is made, different. You made you made heels be heels like. For real. I, and I never thought of the money side of it when you go, you were just saying, Eric, that I never thought of the money side of it where, yeah, if their character is going to take a hit, if they all of a sudden turn from Hogan being the all American made guy, and then you, all of a sudden you go to the dark side. It, it, it does. And, you know, that's a part of the business of the wrestling business that, you know, many fans either don't know or don't bother to consider. Um, when they start discussing such things. But in WWE, for example, um, where, and I'm using WWE as an example because it's the only company that has a, a mature license, by mature I mean established licensing and merchandising program. But in WWE, for example, um, I still get royalty checks to this day 
not 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 for anything that I did for them last year when I was there as an employee, but dating back to 2005 and six and seven, 2003, I'm, I got a royalty check last week. Yeah, you probably got uh, one when I bought my hoodie. Yeah, I think I, made, I well, I didn't think I don't think I made anything off that. But <laughs> um, if you're a WWE superstar, if you're an active current WWE superstar, that's a baby face the chances are your merchandise is going to far surpass any one of your peers who is a heel. So that choice of turning babyface has serious business implications for, for talent. It, it comes down to real money. Now, it's a, it was a different situation with Hulk in WCW and, and, and any top superstar in WWE, because WCW didn't have an established, mature licensing and merchandising business when Hulk came over, which is one of the reasons that he got as big of a guarantee as he did, because we couldn't compete on a revenue share basis for licensing and merchandising because we didn't have any. But Hulk also had a lot of other non-WCW opportunities for television commercials and endorsements and all kinds of things that would likely be impacted to some degree, if he was a heel for very long. So situations are different, but the results are the same. But he sold it, though. I ain't gonna lie, he sold it. Every every heel y'all had, y'all killed it, because that one made us really too in, in WCW. Because I swear to God, like, that's when we knew, like, we was like, oh, man. <laughs> WWE's really... Now, you know what I'm saying? Y'all were really sticking it to him. Like, even with the, you know what I'm saying? Because I think y'all, you was real good with the cruiserweights, too. So I, I mean, I, hey, I, come on. Let's I, just be honest. Prince, let's I, just call it straight up, straight up the middle, hard yeah. and fast. I was good at everything. Yeah. Yeah, you were. And WCW. Maybe not everything. Maybe not everything. I'm telling you now, with the cruiserweights, yeah, you were. Because now everybody's taking the cruiserweight type of flow. Even with Dominic and Rey Mysterio right about now. You basically gave us Rey Mysterio. You know? Everybody that you had gave us, they're still, you know what I'm saying? Even in TNA. And and you leaving friends with a little bit of them, like with Desmond Wolf. Like I would never knew who Desmond Wolf was until I started watching DNA. Well, I can't take any credit for that. Desmond Wolf wasn't my choice of decision. Great talent, by the way. I wish I could take credit for for I'll being be. responsible for Desmond Wolf's involvement. Right. In that, that had nothing to do with it. Ryan, do you have any other questions, brother? I got. I, I can't go all morning here. I know I, I screwed okay. you guys up last week. I apologize for yeah, that. Hey. Can you oh, tell us? Before before you go, I uh, I got. Can I ask you two more questions? You certainly can. All right. Um, you have your book coming out, or it came out actually. Sorry, and um, the controversy creates cash. Back. Came out in two thousand six. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, boy, you scared the hell out of me when you said I had a book coming out. I went, whoa. I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> I better go see one of those dementia doctors real quick because I don't remember that. Right, um, right. Uh, what can I tell you about the book? You know, I was hesitant to, to write a book. I, I really didn't believe that I had anything that anybody was really that interested in saying. And I, I, and I, I you know, recognizing that I, I 
did a couple things in professional wrestling, but I just didn't think there would be that much of an audience to hear about it. Uh, it took a while for, for an, any number of people to convince me that I was probably wrong. <laughs> and I, I, I agreed, it was hesitant, but I agreed to sit down and start the process. But once I got into the process, and by the way, I didn't write the book. Um, my my co-author who actually wrote the book, um, Jeremy Roberts. Now, I, a lot of what you read that Jeremy wrote were, were quotes and stories and things directly from me. But in terms of assembling the timeline and the arc of the book and choosing the photographs and all that, that, that wasn't me. Um, that being said, once I started interviewing with Jeremy Roberts, my co-author, um, it became apparent to me because of the research that he did and because of his talent in telling a story, taking my kind of random bits and pieces of interesting things and tying them all together in a cohesive way. That was Jeremy. And once we started the process, um, I became very, very comfortable with it and realized, wow, there probably is something here. So I was excited to do it, but it took me a little bit to get excited. Okay. Um, also, Tito Ortiz said to say hi to you when we had him on the other night. Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I wouldn't have missed that. Tito's a good dude. I had a chance to work with him in TNA. He's just a solid down-to-earth dude, man. I, I really hope I uh, cross paths with him down the road. Tell him I said hi if you talk to him again. I, I will. I will. Actually, our, our interview kind of went viral last night on TMZ, took my interview, and uh, – Ran with it yesterday, so. They made you famous, brother. Come on. And then I hit him back with a second punch, and I got Eric Bischoff. That's why it's called I Only Touch Greatness. There you go. I love that. Hey, um, I want to thank you. Well, we could, we could wrap it up pretty quick. Prince, can you say goodbye and mute your mic for me? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say, man, thank you. I always going to have more love for you as a businessman, wrestler, entertainer. It doesn't matter. Yo, you the man. Thank you. Prince, I really enjoyed this this morning. I loved hanging with you guys. Let's do it again, okay? Hey, Eric. Okay, let's do it again. Hey, NWO for life. Hey, th thank you, Eric. You're welcome. I'll, I'll, touch base, I'll touch base with you off, off, the, off the air.